Good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to be here with you all, especially as we head into our second Sunday of this Lenten season. But before I begin, will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing before you. Amen. Now, during this Lenten season, we are tracing the revelation of God's character and God's relationship with his people throughout the covenants. Last week, Jordan shared on God's covenant with Noah, where following the judgment of the flood that destroyed the earth, God then restored the animals and the earth and all humanity, laying down his bow of war against humanity's corruption through that tangible sign of the rainbow. This was God's promise that he would never again deal with humanity's sinfulness and wickedness through this kind of almost total destruction. Now, humanity is still sinful, and wickedness is still present, but God has another plan in mind to deal with this. And we catch a glimpse of God's plan through Abraham and Sarah's story today. Now, Abraham is a, a direct descendant of Noah's son, Shem, and God's covenant with Abraham is found actually only in part through our reading for today here in Genesis 17. God's covenant with Abraham started a few chapters and a number of years before this, and it was only slowly revealed to Abraham over the course of, of actually decades. And this slow revelation, I think, was really quite critical to Abraham's story. But before digging into that long, slow revelation over decades, let's begin with today's story and consider what this covenant with Abram reveals to us about God's character and God's relationship with his people. And we're going to consider this more specifically today in the story through God's name and through God's invitation. First, God's name. Throughout scripture, the idea of names and naming are really a critical part of the story. And naming is a beautiful theme in this passage too. Here in Genesis 17, we actually see God named three ways. As Lord, L-O-R-D in all capital letters, God Almighty in Hebrew El Shaddai, and God in Hebrew Elohim. But a little background as we dive into these names of God. At this time in history, Abram and Sarai would have been embedded in a very polytheistic environment where surrounding culture worshipped many gods. Cults around gods and goddesses were simply part of everyday life. Sacrificing to specific gods helped ensure, for example, a good harvest from this god or rain when, rain when needed from that god or maybe the birth of a son from this god. And so this whole idea of worshiping just one God would have been really odd culturally. It wouldn't have made a ton of sense. Here, God's name repeated several times in this short passage as Lord in all caps, God Almighty, and God as Elohim emphasized this God's, our God's, power and transcendence and onlyness. So the author of Genesis here in the story first names God as Lord. And again, in verse one, notice each letter that is capitalized in the text. This name of God, which is always written in English as Lord in all caps, is considered in Jewish faith to be utterly holy, such that the, the Hebrew pronunciation of this name of God is never said aloud out of deep respect and honor for the almighty God, the creator of the universe. In the Old Testament, when we see that Lord in all caps, 
It's a signal for us that God as covenant maker and covenant holder with the people he loves is being evoked. So here, something really important is about to happen. Now in verse one, when God, the covenant maker appears to Abram, God introduces himself as God almighty. In Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. Now, every time I hear that name of God, I think of the old Amy Grant song, Age to Age, You're Still the Same, by the power of the name. And that line in the song does capture some of the meaning of this name of God. In Genesis, El Shaddai is connected to God's promise of children, God's promise of descendants and nations. God as Almighty affirms God's power to do what he says he will do. Throughout pretty much the rest of the passage, the author uses God's name as Elohim, designating this God as the one true God. And use of Elohim throughout scripture indicates that God is the creator, God is the king, God is judge, he's the savior. And this name of God carries with it a character that is compassionate and gracious and faithful to his covenant. This covenant-making God is transcendent above all nations and above the gods of all nations. So three names of God revealed in this short passage, each offering for us a facet of God's character. Age to age, he is the same. This is the God that we worship today, a God who is holy, a promise-keeping God who is faithful, and a God who is transcendent and powerful above all nations, all time, and all history. Our God is holy and faithful and almighty over time and history. Now, God's character in this passage undergirds God's invitation to Abram. In verse 1, after God reminds Abram of his own name, God invites him more deeply into covenant relationship than God had invited him into at any time prior. He says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you. Let's unpack this a little bit. So first, walk before me and be and walk before me faithfully. Now, I love the embodied metaphor of walking before God faithfully. This image of walking with God or before God evokes this sense that God is asking Abram to orient his entire life to God's presence, to God's promises, and to God's commands. But as I got to rereading Abram's story over the last week or so, it struck me that what is amazing about this covenant-making invitation from God is that Abram had already been practicing this kind of whole life orientation to God. Abraham or Abram had already been practicing walking before God faithfully. God did not ask something of Abram that was impossible that Abram did not already had not already grown in the capacity to do because God himself had already prepared Abram to follow God in this way. And so let me explain. Back in Genesis 12, so 5 chapters before It's actually about 25 years before this moment. Abram is 75. He's living with Sarai in the city of Haran. They have no children. It's highly likely that Abram's family and Abram himself worshipped actually a number of gods. As I mentioned before, the surrounding culture was heavily polytheistic. And cults around gods and goddesses based on nature is simply part of life. And in fact, Ur, where Abram's family was originally from, was also the name of the moon god. And so this god Ur probably had significance for Abram's family. 
So in Genesis 12, when the Lord appears to Abram and asks him to go from your country, go from your people and your father's household to the land I will show you, this would have been a pretty challenging ask because first, Abram would have been agreeing to follow just one of the many gods and putting essentially all of his stock or trust in this one God. And second, in that time and day to leave one's homeland, one's people and culture, including the gods of that place, to leave one's family to a new place, it would have meant leaving everything they knew and everything that was their identity, everything that brought physical safety and socioeconomic stability, all of that would have been left behind. God said, go. And in 12.4, we read Abram went, as the Lord told him. This was the beginning of Abram's practicing walking before God faithfully above other gods of his family and background and orienting his entire life to God's presence, to God's promises, and to God's commands. Now, Abram's orienting of his whole life towards God's presence and God's promise of course, wasn't perfect. So there was this stint in Egypt to escape famine and then quickly leaving Egypt after lying to the Egyptian king about who his wife Sarai was. There was this split from his nephew Lot. But then in chapter 13, Abram finds himself at that promised land. It's called Canaan. And God reminds Abram again of his promise. First, that all this land you see, I'm going to give you and your offspring forever. Again, keep in mind, Abram doesn't have kids yet. But second, I'm going to make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. God is promising land and family, and it's just a straight promise. Abram doesn't need to do anything. In response to this reiteration of the promise, Abram builds God an altar, again, practice, practicing that reorienting or orienting of his entire life to God's presence and to God's promises. In Genesis 15, we come to yet another reminder of God's covenant with Abram. The Lord comes to Abram in a vision, and Abram has two pressing questions about God's promises. First, he's getting older, and he still has no children. Second, he has seen the land, but it's occupied by some pretty violent tribes, and he's not really sure how this land is going to come to be his. So maybe, says Abram, God means that his servant will be his heir. Nope. God says to Abram, it's actually your own flesh and blood who's going to be your heir. And then God gives him another picture. His descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he gives a little detail about the land. Abram himself won't actually be permanently settled in that land. His family is going to come to permanently settle in it about four generations from now. But there, Abram continues to practice walking with God faithfully orienting his entire life to God's presence and to God's promises. Genesis 16, a decade later, Abram's 85 or 86, and Abram and Sarai continue to wonder about this problem of children, so, or about this promise of children. And so Sarai suggests her maidservant, Hagar, help God's promise along a little bit. So Hagar bears Abram a son. They name him Ishmael. Things get kind of complicated in the family system at this point. 13 years later, Abram is 99, Ishmael is 13, and he's becoming a man, and therefore is Abram's only and official heir. And then God makes clear that Ishmael is not the flesh and blood descendant of Abram that God promised. 
Now, finally, we come to Genesis 17, to the events that we read about today. Over the last 25 or so years, Abram had been practicing that whole life orientation to God's presence and God's promises, really without those promises having come to fruition. God had reminded him five times of this promise of air uh, and air and land. And each time God offers a bit more detail and description of how this is going to come about, what it's going to be about. And I can't help but think that this slow revelation over the course of years allowed Abram to actually grow in capacity, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, to receive the invitation from this one God to be able to uphold the covenant that's being offered in our story for today. In our story for today, it's, it's almost as though God sees that Abram is maybe ready to be made an active participant in this covenant. And God says to Abram, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Before offering this full covenant with Abram that held this condition of Abram's faithfulness, God had already provided a way for Abram to practice walking faithfully with God. And God is asking that he continue in what God had led him to practice, to continue to live a life of blamelessness. Now, this term blameless should not be equated with sinlessness. That's not humanly possible. Here, blameless is more about wholeness of relationship and integrity. It's about abstaining from sin rather than being without sin. So here, blamelessness is more linked to truth and virtue and righteousness. It really has to do with Abram's continued walking faithfully before God and returning to God even after a few missteps along the way, as we've seen. Abram's response to God's full invitation into partnership, a partnership into this covenant Abram's response is to fall face down, a posture of total surrender and awe. And God then adds detail to his promise and emphasizes his promise through that powerful practice of naming. So God Almighty says to Abram, I will make you the father of many nations. And to confirm this, I am changing your name to Abraham. Nations and kings will come from you. Yes, you are a foreigner in this land of Canaan, but I will give it to your family forever. I will be their God. This is an everlasting covenant. And then, for the first time, God Almighty also specifically addresses Sarai and makes Sarai an explicit partner in this covenant. This is really unusual. Blessings in ancient time were reserved for male recipients, and naming is usually done by the male head of the family. But here, God names her Sarah and promises that she will be the one. She will be the one from whom this son is to be their heir. She will be the mother of the nations. Sarah is the only woman in scripture whose name is changed. And later, whose death is actually really detailed, specifically and filled with honor. So this is a remarkable moment for this mother of nations. God planned to save the world through an impossible birth to 90-year-old Sarah, a woman far too old. And generations later, God's plan to save the world would come to fruition through an impossible birth 
to Sarah's ancestor, Mary, a girl who was so very young. I've been really encouraged this week as I've been reviewing Abram's story again. When God invites Abraham and Sarah into this covenant, he doesn't ask of them something that is impossible or unachievable. He had been inviting Abraham to walk with him in faith for 25 years. And over that time, Abram's faith had been stretched and strengthened as he waited and waited and waited for the promised son and the promised land. How God would possibly fulfill these promises was completely unseeable and unknowable to them. But God didn't ask them to understand how it would come about. He simply provided opportunity for them to practice walking before him in faithful relationship, orienting their lives around his presence and promises even yet unmet. God himself would miraculously provide for the rest. I'm kind of tempted to have us look ahead together in the story to see Isaac finally born, to see when Israel entered the promised land. But actually, I think in this season of the instability and uncertainty and unknowns of covid of ever more visible racial injustices and continued political and social turmoil. I think it's useful to, to pause in the tension of a yet-to-be-fulfilled promise alongside the invitation to continue walking faithfully. Abraham and Sarah's story reminds us that in the tension of this time, we serve a God who is utterly holy, who is faithful to keep his promises, and who is almighty in power over all of time and over all of history. Abraham and Sarah's story reminds me that as God invites us to live a life of wholehearted orientation around his presence and promise, that he also gives us the, the means and the capacity to walk with him, to walk before him, and to live in righteousness. We can live righteously with God today, because he has already provided Jesus Christ, and because the Spirit of God lives within us. And I think we also have the capacity in this really challenging time to live wholeheartedly with him and for him, because God, over the course of each of our lives with him, has already helped us to do so. In Advent, we had the gift of hearing testimonies from so many among us about the incredible work of God in our lives. God has in large and small moments for all of us shown his faithfulness, offered encouragement when we needed it, reminded us of his mercy and his grace that covers our sin. And so I think we can continue to face today's uncertainty and unknown because we have in so many other moments of our lives experienced the faithfulness and transcendence and almighty power of our great God. I'm going to leave a couple of moments of silent prayer for us, and um, in prayer, ask for the Spirit to bring to mind images of God's faithfulness in our stories and our pasts, and that the Lord through this would bring encouragement as we continue to engage our present challenges and maybe foster some hope for the future. So will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that in the coming moments, you would indeed remind each of us of a moment or two of your faithfulness, of your encouragement in our past. Lord, give us an image of where you have been with us, where you have been faithful to us in our past. 
And Holy Spirit, I pray that even throughout this day, you would continue to bring to remembrance and bring to mind moments of your past faithfulness to each of us. And Lord God, that these moments gathered together would give us strength and encouragement to continue facing the challenges of today. And yes, Lord, even give us hope for our futures. In your holy name, amen.